Hey, how are you? Hey, I am doing great. I, I'm i like so great. I'm like Tony the Tiger great. You know how like there's like 8 million R's? <laughs> great. Uh, so Shelly and I got away uh, last week and we got to go to this amazing village in central Washington called Leavenworth. And have you ever heard of Leavenworth? Is there a fort there? No. Fort Leavenworth sounds important. I imagine I'm not it sure does. Why, uh, no, this has nothing to do with a fort. It's actually an old logging town in the central Cascades of Washington that kind of died out when the railroad wasn't transporting their logs anymore and they'd kind of harvested a lot of the timber. And so as they steadily died out, they kind of said, well, how are we going to, you know, how are we going to survive as a town? And somebody had the brilliant idea Let's turn the whole town into a Bavarian village. And so it li- literally looks like you you stepped into Germany, like 18th century Germany, while you are in the middle of Washington. And it's this beautiful little tiny hamlet that is tucked away in the mountains. Uh, there's a river that runs through it. There's uh, lakes nearby. The forest is amazing. And the town is amazing it really really looks like an old bavarian village so you have all this german food and all this decor and all these shops to go see anyway it's awesome the time away with my wife was awesome i feel refreshed and i am ready to go yes everybody needs retreat times yes you know what i mean Oh, absolutely. Yeah, it had been quite a while since the two of us just broke away. So, boy, it was needed for sure. So, but yeah, how are you? I am doing quite well. My wife and I recently started, and my wife and I is not quite accurate, really. My wife, with tiny little bits of help from me, recently started a a local nonprofit to give people in ministry, pastors, missionaries, those kinds of people, a place where they can connect with other people in ministry and sort of leave their title at the door and just be a person. And the opening weeks of that have gone really well. Uh, We had an open house yesterday and a whole bunch of folks showed up and it's been really good. That is awesome. I'm very excited about that. Yeah, Yeah, 100%. Uh, We're taking a vacation with you guys this coming August, and I know that very high on my priority list is to sit down and talk with Kristen about her dream and her vision and her implementation for this. This just looks amazing. Yeah, it's super cool. Every time I go there, whether it's for a time of prayer or it's just to connect with people, something like an open house, I am so excited. It is, it is a very cool opportunity. So I'm thrilled about that. And, uh, you know, I would normally ask, why, you know, hey, so, you know, what are you calling about or something like that? But today I know why you're calling because it's February 14th. You called to wish me happy Valentine's Day, didn't you? <laughs> I did. You know what? I got you a little conversation hearts because I thought that was appropriate. Uh No, actually, I can't stand Conversation Hearts or Valentine's Day, so I don't want to talk about it. 
Instead, I want to talk about denominations, which is like Ooh. not at all related to Valentine's Day. But um, yeah, I so let me give you some backstory here as to why this is on my mind. I have referenced a couple of times, and I think I've referenced it enough that this is the straw that's finally going to break the camel's back, and you're actually going to listen to this podcast now, The Rise and Fall of Mars Hill. I might. I probably won't. I might. (laughs) All right. Well, maybe our listeners will if they haven't already. It is excellent. But the impetus for this conversation came from an episode where Tim Keller, who had kind of a He's a church planner, and Mars Hill was originally a church plant, so he had a connection with Mars Hill through this church planting network. And Mm -hmm. he came on to the podcast and talked about the rise and fall of Mars Hill kind of from his perspective. And here's one of the things that stood out to me really, really strong from his time on the podcast. He referenced the fact that Mark Driscoll could get away with a lot of questionable applications of theology because he was part of a non-denominational church and there wasn't a sufficient oversight over what he was teaching and how he was leading his people. Whereas Tim Keller has the complete opposite experience. He is Presbyterian and he answers to his local presbytery. There's various levels of authority within the Presbyterian church, and I don't remember what all the levels and all the titles are. But he said that there were some people that questioned his theological stance on something, and they reported it to the board, and he was required to come before that board and explain his true theological position and whether or not it was in line with Presbyterian doctrine. He not only had to do this once or twice, he had to do this three different times because the people that reported it were not satisfied with the process each time and somehow felt like there was more to uncover. So as irksome as that was to have to appear before this body three different times, he did so and ultimately appreciates the oversight of him and his teaching to make sure that he's staying in line with orthodoxy. And I thought that was a very good argument for denominations. So I wanted to explore the idea of what are the good, the bad, and the otherwise about denominations. Hmm, That's fascinating. And this is a really interesting moment in my life to have this conversation. I am thinking about my own denomination almost minute by minute here, because on Thursday of this week, I will be going to interview for the highest level of credential that my denomination offers. Uh, So I've I've spent the last several years working through the process of, of being credentialed with a denomination and really having been in the same denomination almost 20 years I find myself very situated in a denomination, and I now live in the capital of that denomination. Uh, so, yeah, that's a really interesting conversation. So, what is your starting point in this conversation? I honestly don't remember 
what denomination the church you are currently going to is, which says something. Yeah. Technically, our church is non-denominational, but it belongs to one of these church planting networks that does provide some level of oversight in that should we as congregation members ever have an issue with the pastoral staff that could not be resolved with the pastoral staff, we can elevate that concern to this church planting organization who will in turn form a group to come alongside and investigate. And so there is some level of oversight that is not always present in a non-denominational church, but technically I belong to a non-denominational church. Yeah, which I am, by the way, this we have to come back to the rise of these non-denominational organizational networks. <laughs> right. Uh, and and how right, like I mean, with Acts 29, of course, being the biggest one that I'm aware of that I think Mark Driscoll, who you mentioned earlier, is or was the, I think he was the founder of. I'm saying that off the cuff, so if I'm wrong, somebody I hope you're mad enough to make a comment about right. it so that I can find out I'm wrong. But uh, yeah, these have to play into this conversation. The fact that there are these non-denominational missional agencies. If you want to do church the way we do church, regardless of what you believe, we want to help you do that. Yeah. That says something about where we're at denominationally today. It does. And I think there is... I. I think there's that need for the oversight that we were talking about just a minute ago from Tim Keller's perspective. But then there's also kind of a cultural push against denominations because there is, I don't know, an idea of divisiveness maybe that is bred into the denominational structure. Like, oh, I'm not one of those types of Christians. I'm a Baptist or whatever, you know, throw your own denomination in there. But then... I think it also like, oh, we follow a certain creed or we follow a certain set of doctrines produced by this organizing body rather than, no, we just follow Jesus and we follow the Bible. And I think some of those ideas are out there pushing against denominations, but then there's still this need for hierarchy or oversight. And so these other bodies have come alongside to try to fill that void. Hmm. But I, I don't know that I have... I, I sympathize with some of those arguments, but I'm not sure if I'm completely sold on those arguments. But I'm curious from your perspective, and like you said, you have a long tenure with one denomination, or actually the Assemblies of God, they just call it a movement. Yes. So the Assemblies of God is very uncomfortable calling itself a denomination, but for the purposes of our discussion, we will call it a denomination and any Assemblies of God folks who care passionately about that distinction. I'm sorry up front. I agree with you. I get where you're coming from. I'm just trying to simplify the conversation linguistically here. Yeah, makes sense. Makes sense. Um, so here's here's my big hang-up with the idea of a denomination. It actually has very little to do with denomination itself and much more to do with the assumptions people make when they hear what denomination you're a part of. So I grew up Baptist. But, you know, the next question is, well, what flavor of Baptist? Are you a Southern Baptist? In which case we have all sorts of assumptions that come with that. 
Are you a conservative Baptist? Are you an American Baptist? All of these have little different nuances to them. And all of a sudden, I get branded, my theology gets branded by my denominational affiliation, which may or may not be true. And I think you're probably in the same bucket in that you're in an Assemblies of God church, and there's certain assumptions that come from the Assemblies of God area. So I don't like having people presume my theology just based on that title. Yeah, you know, I if we take this as our starting point, a denomination we're defining as a group of churches that share a similar set of beliefs and a similar set of organizing principles. Is that fair? Yeah, I like that. Similar set of beliefs, similar set of organizing principles. So you can't have you can't have the same set of beliefs and two and a different set of polity type of polity. Then you're you're not in the same denomination. Right. So for example, in the Presbyterian model, there's a heavy amount of oversight. In a, at the Assemblies of God model, there's a very light level of oversight, a very, very light level of oversight. And the denomination is not telling us a lot about how to organize our church or whatever. But just to add a little bit to this conversation, I grew up in a, not even a non-denominational church. I grew up in a church that was anti-denominational. They mm. would point back to the first couple chapters of 1 Corinthians where Paul says, don't one of you say I follow Paul and I follow Apollos and I follow Cephas and uh, divide yourselves that way because that's not okay. Mm-hmm. And working off of that script, the church I grew up in would say at the time, I don't know that they would say it this way now, but at least what I got out of what they were saying was, it is wrong to be a part of a denomination because you are breaking those simple rules that Scripture teaches at the beginning of First Corinthians. You are being divisive just by being a part of a denomination. So don't do that. So I have gone from that place to now a 20-year veteran in the Assemblies of God. And all of that Really, I mean to be preemptive to responding to your comment about how a denomination is on some level a theological tag. And I have to say, I love this. I don't love it because I am all in on everything that the Assemblies of God believes and I agree in every little jot and tittle of of what the Assemblies of God says, but it is at least a reasonable starting point. You know, if we think of a label, lots of things can be in a box labeled DVD, or lots of things can be in a box labeled cereal. And it's not necessarily the same as labeling something McDonald's or Walmart. It's a little broader than that. And I think for me, that's how that should land. When we label somebody as Assemblies of God or Baptist or Presbyterian, 
it does definitely say things, but I, I'm great with that. I'm great with knowing the fact that somebody who goes to a Presbyterian church probably prefers a certain speed of church and probably lands theologically in a certain space. I'm great with knowing that if you're a Southern Baptist, that at least says something about how strongly you want to stand on the Bible, whatever else it means. I'm super okay with the fact that if somebody knows I'm Assemblies of God, that means I do indeed believe in speaking in tongues and am hope hopeful and praying to see miracles all the time. And uh, so I, I guess I really like the idea of labels at least giving us a starting point for the conversation so that I don't have to drill somebody with 57 questions to figure out where they're at. Mm-hmm. Does that make sense? Yeah, I do. I do like those. I don't even know. I, I really am averse to labels. That is just built into my DNA. I don't know that that is like a theological thing as much as it is a personal Josh from Oregon thing. So I I don't love labels, but I understand the we our brains categorize. That's just what they do. We we have we have to put things in buckets in order to make sense of the world and to orient ourselves quickly. And so yes, I do appreciate the opportunity to orient quickly. What I don't appreciate, I think are two things. One, the assumption that now I know everything there is to know about your theology and you as a person or you as a Christian, and therefore I don't need to ask any more questions. Or two, this self-identity that goes a little bit too far. For instance, I know of a Baptist pastor who was introducing Lent to their congregation and sending out like daily Lent readings to people's emails that had great, wonderful theological content in them that every Baptist would agree with. But the fact that it had the word Lent in it drew some ire because we're Baptists and we don't do Lent. Well, I don't think that that's true. But I I mean, I get that, yes, Baptist as a whole kind of threw out the proverbial baby with the bathwater when it comes to the liturgy. But I think we're holding our Baptist identity a little too tightly to just reject Lent out of hand because it has liturgical implications. Yeah. Now, yes. So your second point was sometimes people are very narrow in how they're willing to experience faith or Christianity because of their their own self-labeling. Mm-hmm. And if that's what somebody's using a denominational title for or label for, then yes, we need to stop it, right? Like we've had, I think back to even one of our earliest episodes where we were talking about how Christians should be reading and the idea of being a humble learner. I'm not sure how you can take a Christian or Christ-like posture to something and not be just humble. Hmm. And on some level, I don't think that's the denomination's fault. I think that's the person and their spiritual immaturity's fault. That is a very um, fair statement. 
And, and what was the first thing you said? Because the first thing you said, I, I, I want to come back to the first thing you said because I thought it was interesting, but I couldn't hold them both in my head at the same time. Sure. Yeah. Sorry. So the first thing was, you know, I don't want somebody to uh, make a, an assumption that they now know everything about me as a person or as a Christian, and therefore do not need to ask any more questions. The initial yeah. orientation is where they stop. Yes. So I hear this. I feel like in the the very limited number of conversations about the value of a denomination that I have had, I am, and this could be a topic for conversation, I am somewhat siloed um, in my own denomination, though not philosophically so. But the few conversations I've had about the value of denomination, I have feel like I have heard this a, a handful of times. And my initial question is just, has that actually happened? Because it feels like a straw man. It feels like a thing that might happen, but I'm not aware of people doing it. Though the people in your second argument would certainly do that. And again, I would blame them for that, not the denominational tag. You know, that's a good point. And I think it probably speaks, at least on some level, to my personal aversion to labels. And my fear that all of the worst things about a label are going to come true anytime a label is used. So I don't know that I've had a lot of personal experiences where that has been has that has played out the way I fear. Yeah, and I don't I don't think it's just you. I think that we are in a transitional period in terms of what denomination means as well as in group identity as a culture in which we are much more flexible about the way we define group identity. So the number of folks who go into a voting booth and just vote Democrat or vote Republican all the way down because that's how they vote is drastically diminishing. The number of folks who are going to say, I'm Southern Baptist and the only thing I'm going to go to is I'm going to find the Southern Baptist church in whatever town I move to or uh, Assemblies of God Church in whatever town I move to, and that's where I'm going. That speaks of a way of understanding group identity and its labels that I just don't think is where we're at anymore. You know, I think even of some of those organizations you were speaking of that work with church planners and things, like I, I was mentioning Acts 29. Acts 29 works with a large percentage of denominational. I know Southern Baptists who were part of Acts 29. I know Pentecostals who were part of Acts 29. Yeah. Suddenly it's okay to have multiple identities, multiple labels, and I am deeply grateful for the amount of flexibility because I think that allows denominations to still offer us some of their significant benefits and I think there are a ton of significant benefits without some of the potential negative repercussions. Yeah. So I was about to ask you if you thought because of the rise of these more ecumenical parachurch organizations, the idea of denomination is obsolete. And based on what you went on to say, obviously you'd say the answer is no. So I guess I would love to hear from you on a personal level, 
what have been the benefits of being a part of a deno- uh, denomination to you personally? Yeah, absolutely. And I, I am delighted to talk about this because when I moved to the Assemblies of God Mecca, I was very strongly warned by many of my peers in the far reaches of the Assemblies of God hinterland in southern Massachusetts, uh, or southern New England, excuse me, I was warned that the politicalness and the insiderness and the there would be all sorts of things that would culturally really bother me. And I, I am delighted to say that has not been my experience at all. That's really um, awesome. Yeah. Here are some things I love about having a a movement that I'm a part of. Uh, number one, in the realm of discipleship. You have an organization who has figured out how to do it better than you. So we have a district official. You want to start a men's ministry at your church or you need some help figuring out how to make sure your men's ministry is actually changing somebody's life. We have a guy that that's all he does, and he'll come out and work with you for weeks. It's like having a free sudden, he always says it's like having a free staff member (laughs) uh, for a little while to get things going. He will train your leaders. He will train your volunteers. He will train the staff how to do men's ministry really, really well. That is an amazing gift that a, a denomination can offer. The same is true for literature. I am very grateful for my denomination's uh, work in providing leadership and discipleship literature. Uh, The Influence magazine, the leadership magazine that my denomination puts out is very helpful. I read it every single quarter when it comes out. It is one of the few podcasts I listen to regularly. So there's training materials that are available. I also love the fact that we get to partner together to send out missionaries I would love to look up this statistic. I have been told by many, 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 many people that the two largest missions organizations in the world are the Southern Baptists and the Assemblies of God. If that is true, and I don't know that it is, but it seems plausible, if that is true, then denominations are still the best organization we've got for sending missionaries Mm. because denominations are awesome at it and that in and of itself which is by the way why the assemblies of god was originally started this I, i can't speak to southern baptist convention but the assemblies of god as a movement was actually started as a way of organizing funds to go to missionaries effectively with as little oversight as possible. So those are two, the the discipleship potentials and the missions potentials, I think are exceptionally valuable. Yeah, and I think that's such a good perspective because you as a pastor would have that perspective. You're in the organizational structure. You, on some level, think organizationally. How do we accomplish this mission? The average person who shows up in the pew every day, this is a terrible way to phrase it, but consumes the mission that has been put together or participates in Mm -hmm. the mission that has been put together. And 
on a participant level, you don't really think about how did this come off? How did this come to be? And where did the resources for this come from? And how did they get the training to make this effective? Like none of that occurs to most participants. They just want to show up. And if it's led well, they want to do it again. And that's it. Exactly. Uh, so I think some of the popular uprising against denominations fails to take this into account. Yeah, absolutely. Which is actually why, so at least the Assemblies of God, we credential ministers, not churches. So as much as you can call a church an Assemblies of God church, technically all that means is it's led by an Assemblies of God pastor, or, I mean, a church, obviously, an individual church can write into its bylaws whatever it wants, including the Assemblies of God theological positions on things, whatever. But what the Assemblies of God actually credentials is ministers. And this is exactly why, because it's supposed to be an organization of ministers who gather together to effectively help each other do their job. And you're absolutely right. That's not going to trickle down to whoever shows up at men's ministry is not going to know that this guy over here is not necessarily part of the church or they wouldn't necessarily know that the curriculum, the app that we're using is a denominationally provided resource and that's why it's free. Um, Mm. They just don't know that stuff. Sure. Well, and I'll tell you, as much as I personally dislike a label, I love the idea of the oversight. I love the training materials. I love the organizational structure that allows to send missionaries effectively and efficiently. I love the theological fencing that helps to secure orthodoxy within each individual church. I think there's a lot of really good things about denominations, even if I struggle with labels. Um, Mm. And I personally intend to try to take full advantage of denominational structures. My goal, as you know, is to finish up my MDiv and then go on to get a master's in counseling. And part of the audience that I want to reach with my counseling minister, uh, my counseling practice, is pastors and missionaries and church leaders. And the only way I'm going to get in the door to do that is to get some buy-off from some denominational leaders who say, yeah, we've checked into this guy, we believe in him, and tells their people, yes, please, you you are welcome to use this resource, we believe in it, we believe in him. And I hope that that is a springboard for me reaching a group of people who are often reluctant to seek help when they need it. And so I think there's a lot of good that a denomination can and does do. That's a really good point about kind of fencing. You know, when we started this this nonprofit where we're trying to give pastors space to just be people, one of the things my wife did is she met with our district superintendent and said, hey, I don't want you to hear about this. Or, you know, we're not trying to like pull people away from district events and we would like your blessing on this because that means something to people. And he talked with her and and met with her and and got a sense of where she was at. And then he sent out an email to the entire district that said, 
hey, this is a real thing. They're okay. And this is a safe thing to be a part of. And I have had multiple people come up to me and say, oh, the superintendent said it's okay. So let's talk more about this. Yeah, that's awesome. Yeah. And that is valuable. We do not have time in our lives to properly check out everything. Right. And to be honest, I did not expect him to even go that far because I fully respect his right to say, I don't know enough about this. I'm not going to send out an email about it because I know how much my word means. If he had said that, I would have been like, yeah, yeah, of course, absolutely. Uh, Guard your leadership. But we need, right? We need seals of approval from from people we trust. Yeah, I think that's a huge role for denominations. I find myself now trying to think, are there downsides? And I think the downside really is the one we've kind of danced around a little bit here. I mentioned earlier that I am siloed uh, in my denomination. And I have said many times in many different ways, as have you uh, on the, in the, our conversations here, that it is encountering differing views that causes us to grow as people. And to be siloed in my own movement, again, not by choice in the sense that I'm saying I reject the outside world, so much as by saying I'm a very busy person and can barely keep everything in my schedule that has to be in my schedule, I think the potential danger may be that there is a lack of opportunity for iron to sharpen iron. And I deeply value that. I value being challenged by someone who thinks differently. It's why I read, you know, everything from folks who are Catholic to folks who are atheists to folks who are Calvinists to folks that are whatever. I don't care. If I think you are an honest thinker, I'm interested in hearing what you have to say because... I want my thoughts to be challenged. Yeah. You know, I think that that is probably one of the biggest hurdles that we have in society, regardless of denomination. Our society is structured in such a way that we group together. You find the people that you have an affinity with and you stick with them or you find the theological or political position that you agree with and you stick with them. And so, you know, I think that the the social dilemma, which we've both heard about but haven't watched yet, highlights that very thing about how social media is just an avenue for showing you what you want to see and only what you want to see. And the same mm danger is inherent within a denomination. You can get a little too siloed in your individual group and and not interact with the wider world or the your theological neighbors. I think we're just like going to try to pin these, you know, bingo. Uh, but at any rate, I, I agree <laughs> with you. You know, it took me an embarrassingly long amount of time to realize why you said bingo. Um, 
That's just sad for me. <laughs> no, that's that speaks to why the bingo card was written. Like you heard theological neighbors and you're like, yeah, of course, that's what you should say right now. And you just like moved on and went, oh, wait, that's what they were making fun <laughs> yes, of. That's exactly right. <laughs> uh, okay. Well, thank you for diving into this conversation. I actually came out feeling much more positive toward denominations. I don't know that I was antagonistic coming into them, but I feel like my vision for denominations expanded because of this conversation. Yeah. I mean, I've, I have found some real benefits. Doesn't mean that there aren't harms and I'm sure people have other stories, but that's my story. I love it. Yeah. But, uh, you know, speaking of other stories, I am very curious to hear what denomination people are affiliated with, to what degree they care about that denominational label, what the strengths and weaknesses of denominations as a whole are. And so uh, I would love to have people connect with us on Facebook, Instagram, share their experiences, their stories. Uh, I would love, as we were talking about making sure that conversations get started, I would love to have you share this podcast with somebody and let it be a conversation starter with somebody who's different from you and get their perspective on all of these things. That's why we're here and what why we're doing what we're doing. So uh, share all of what we're doing with anybody you can think of and then let us know what happens. We're very curious to hear your story. Yeah, absolutely. You can find us on Facebook at On the Phone with Josh or on Instagram. Uh, just search us up and let us know. We'd love to hear from you. Yeah, exactly. But, uh, you know, what else have you been thinking about? I'm sure that the concept of the denomination is not the only thing you're thinking about this week. <laughs> you you would be right. Uh, yes, you would be right. So this thought comes from a book that I'm very slowly working my way through. I only have so much print reading time, and it often gets consumed with school. And so I'm slowly working my way through Dr. Rodney Reeves's book, Spirituality According to John. And mm. it's been really, really good. But he had kind of an aside in his book that really kind of had my head spinning. And he talked about the fact that in John's day, in order to hear the gospel of John, it had to be read corporately. And that's how people got their Bible. They didn't sit down and read it because literacy rates weren't high enough. And we didn't have the printing press. And so there just wasn't enough copies to go around. So by and large, the only way you heard the gospel of John was to hear it read corporately. And he's talked about the fact that since then, literacy rates have skyrocketed. And yet today we have a very high illiteracy rate when it comes to the Bible. People don't know their Bibles. He, he says this, quote, Ever since we placed the burden of Bible reading on the individual Christian, biblical illiteracy has increased. And I thought that was a fascinating statement. Just like, I guess, going back to your denominational structure, right? There are certain resources and trainings and tools that you depend on your 
denominational hierarchies to provide for the churches because they have the time or the ability or the knowledge or expertise to do that and to provide that. And so we depend on one another. We depend on groups of fellow believers for certain things. And we have privatized, individualized the reading of Scripture and placed the individual responsibility on each person. And that fundamentally changes the structure, for good or for Mm -hmm. ill, and he contends for ill. And so therefore, I'm left asking, then what? How do we reinstitute, if it's needed, how do we reinstitute the public reading of Scripture? And how might that benefit people's biblical literacy? How do you do that in the 21st century? Yeah, and, and I would I would challenge you to think not just the public reading, but the public consumption of Scripture. You know, just recently we're talking about social media, and I am convinced that the most beneficial tool for biblical literacy in the 21st century is the Bible app because it's social Bible reading. Mm. Both my kids have done Bible plans with friends. I know a number of couples that do Bible reading plans together. I know churches that do communal Bible plans. And I love the fact that the Bible app brings the Bible back into a community space rather than an individual space. It certainly isn't the only solve, and I'm not trying to suggest it. it is the solution to all the woes that you're expressing, which I think are extraordinarily true and very important for us to think more about. But I do appreciate it as, a, as an offering. Yes. That is a really, really good point. I have not made full advantage of the social functions of the Bible app. I love it just because I can quickly switch between different translations and see how different translators or translating committees, as the case may be, uh, worked through a certain text. So I use it often for that or to highlight certain things and to create little you know, pictures of text. But the social aspect, I have not taken full advantage of that. Yeah, I really enjoy it. So you you know that I have to constantly change the way that I read the Bible. So I will mm. read the Bible in the exact same way for a couple of months, and then I will move on to something different. But one of the things that has been in that rotation periodically has been uh, the Bible app and doing something corporately just because it's so different from me and Jesus alone in a room. And I think that's mm. interesting. Mm-hmm. Absolutely. Yeah. So what about you? What are you thinking about? Sure. You know, this morning I was listening to Steve Cuss's Managing Leadership Anxiety podcast, and he had one of the greatest quotes on discipleship I've heard in a long time. I just had to share it with you. He said, if you want to grow as a follower of Jesus— Go find someone who is hard to love and love them well. Hmm. I have nothing else to say about that. That's not true, actually. I have lots of things to say about that. But I feel like that quote just stands on its own beautifully. 
If you want to grow as a follower of Jesus, go find someone who is hard to love and love them well. The only thing I would add to it is go find someone who is hard for you to love. If you are good at loving a particular group of people that other people aren't good at loving, that's not who we're talking about. Go find someone who is hard for you to love and love them well. And you will grow in your relationship with Jesus. Mm. That's challenging. Isn't that good? Yeah, absolutely. I also just want to sit with that. So I'm sorry for the lack of response, but I'm just letting that settle. That's how I feel. I'm like, oh, yep. Yep. There should be silence after that for like two whole minutes, just so we can all think about who that person is in our own lives. You know, it's funny. You, You talk about silence and I listened to a biography of Mr. Rogers and he was talking about the the noise and the chaos of children's programming and how he intentionally slowed his programming down and how he built in silence into his programming intentionally. And I love that. And I've often thought about it with our podcast because there are times where you or I will sit and think about a response for an extended period of time. And inevitably in the editing process, I like shrink that way down to like keep the listener's attention. Mm -hmm. And sometimes I wonder like, am I doing a disservice by shrinking down that silence? Absolutely. No, I, I, I understand. I mean, slow is one of my words for this year that I want to constantly come back to because I move too fast. And if I move too fast, I'm not in this moment. I'm wishing I could change the the past. I'm making up things I don't know about the future. And God doesn't meet with me in either of those. He only meets with me in the present. Hmm. That's good. Yeah. Well, I'm going to be like a newscaster and build off of that and say, speaking of moving too fast, (laughs) the which Josh question, which Josh probably was moving too fast when he almost got his thumb cut off while making photocopies. And this was me. I fully admit it. Have I told you this story? No, I couldn't believe when this came up as the Witch Josh question this week. And I was like, I don't know. I don't know this story. I have to hear this. Oh, man. Okay. So I was at my old church and I had to photocopy a whole bunch of pages uh, for a meeting I was getting ready to go in. And you are 100% correct. I was moving too fast because I was running late and the copy machine ran out of paper and... This person was supposed to come in any second, and so I had to get another ream of paper. But of course, there were no reams of paper available. And so, you know, paper comes in these boxes of like eight or ten reams of paper, and they're bound up by those plastic straps. Do you know those plastic straps that I mean? Oh, yeah, uh, they're murder. They're horrible. They are proof that the fall is a real theological reality. 
Um, <laughs> but so I, I was trying to get one of those and I couldn't find the little spot where you can rip it. And so I had my Leatherman on me and I went to cut it. And as I was getting ready to cut it, I was thinking to myself, I always tell my kids to cut away, but it was really far away from me. And I was leaning over something and trying to steady it with my hand and whatever. And I went to cut that strap uh, and I had to flick the knife towards myself and I cut my thumb so badly that like there was blood gushing everywhere and I then had to stop what I was doing and go into the bathroom. I got like a giant wad of paper towels. I held them onto my thumb to try to stop the bleeding. And because I'm a knucklehead, instead of addressing the problem, I then went back, made my photocopies and went into my meeting and sat there for a full hour. (laughs) pastorally counseling somebody while just trying to gently hold my hands together in a way that did not indicate the fact that I was trying to make sure that the blood did not go back to gushing. Oh my gosh. (laughs) Yeah. I am not patting myself on the back for this, by the way. Uh, This was 10 or 12 years ago and I was trying too hard. Um, Mm. that is a great example of trying too hard. I'm sorry. I just cut myself and I'm not going to be able to meet with you. I'm sorry you're here, but I'm going to have to go figure out the fact that I have blood all over the place was a correct answer in that situation. Um, (laughs) come on in and let's talk was not right. Oh my goodness. Um, I have to say to all the listeners out there, if you are squeamish, I am with you. Literally, as you were telling your story, I like danced around the room, like not really wanting to hear what was coming next. I don't love these stories. So uh, yeah, I think we, we're ready to end the episode now. <laughs> uh, I'll be honest. I was holding my thumb the whole time. Uh, I oh, that's funny. Scar. So I was holding my thumb over my scar as if I were trying to stop the bleeding. Uh, so clearly I have a, a visceral memory of this experience. Oh, yeah, no doubt. Okay. Uh, well, are we on for next week with all 10 digits? Yes, hopefully. Okay, I'll talk to you then. Right. Bye now. Bye-bye.